Bible Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. Good morning and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is an hour-long call-in talk show where you can either email us or call us directly here with questions you may have concerning the Christian life, your personal ministry, family, or just issues that as you're studying the scripture, you want to dialogue. Maybe you have a question over a passage of scripture that you've been studying. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. We get a lot of email questions every week at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.org. TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, though we always give preference and priority to live callers. Well, Rick, the questions have already stacked up. They've come in from a number of places over the country, and so let's go ahead and see if we can get started. Indeed, Pastor, our first caller would like to know what your opinion about whether or not an avowed homosexual should serve in a ministry at his or her church? Well, service in the church is a privilege, and service in God's church is for those people who have been born twice. And so if someone is an avowed homosexual, then you would assume that they've never been converted, that they've never had a second birth. That's not to say that someone could not come from a homosexual background, uh, be born again, and maybe struggle with that sin. Uh, But if they were struggling and actually uh, living a less than celibate life, uh, then they would be out of fellowship with God and living in sin and certainly wouldn't be qualified for service, but would be qualified for church discipline. Uh, So, you know, the whole issue of homosexuality has become so fuzzy in people's minds, but it's not okay to be gay. It's It's an evil. It is a sin, just like premarital sex or extramarital sex or any kind of sexual perversion. And uh, when we fail to follow God's order and God's design, we're living in sin and we've disqualified ourselves from leadership. And many times, if that's our lifestyle, what we've said by our lifestyles that we really don't even know Christ as our personal savior. So we, we want to think very clearly on these issues. And Paul knows how easy it is to be deceived. And that's why he says in first Corinthians chapter six, Um, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the next verse is encouraging because it extends a hand of hope to anyone. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You know, I was talking to a guy on the phone the other day. He called me about a totally unrelated question. And he said, well, the reason I called you pastor is I felt like, well, uh, my pastor maybe wouldn't be a good person to talk to. I'm not sure that she would listen to me. And so I listened to him for a while. I said, well, tell me what, what kind of church you're in. He's calling from another state. He's in Alabama, if I remember. He said, well, United Methodist Church. I said, well, maybe you call me for another reason today beyond the question you have with this family issue. I said, has it occurred to you that, one, you're in a church denomination that supports homosexuality uh, as a lifestyle, is endorsing the marriage of homosexuals, Uh, Do you realize that when you give uh, a portion of your money uh, to that denomination, it goes to support things that are contrary to the word of God and that uh, there's not a single United Methodist seminary in the United States that believes in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible? And he hung up on me. (laughs) So, you know, the, the, the thinking is so fuzzy in the day that we live in. People get upset and, uh, over things that they shouldn't get upset by. That What they need to be doing is um, taking their mind and calibrating it to the Word of God. And God's Word is clear on this issue of homosexuality. If you have questions on it, you may want to go to our website, search the scriptures, all one word, dot org. And I have a message, is it okay to be gay? And I think if you watch that, um, you wouldn't even be asking this question this morning. But I'm glad you did. I'm glad you called. Let's go to the next caller or email, Rick. And Indeed. I wonder whatever happened to just nice, cordial discourse. <laughs> yeah, everybody takes things personally now. All right. Our next listener would like to know, what is the relationship between faith and works in the Old Testament? Are the Old Testament saints saved by works since they had to obey the law? Well, God has only had one way of salvation from beginning to end, and that is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, The function of the law was never given to save. It was given to reveal. Uh, Paul tells us that, for instance, in Romans chapter 7, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He said, I would not have known about coveting if the Lord said, thou shalt not covet. And so if someone coveted something, they would know that they were in violation of God's standards. So the law was never given to make you righteous. If you stand next to a 10-foot pole, it doesn't make you 10 feet. It just shows you that you're not 10 feet. And when you stand next to the holy law of God, it shows us that we are unholy. Luther used to say the law was not given to justify, but to terrify and to lead us to faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in the book of Galatians. The law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, the old King James renders it, our tutor to to lead us to faith in Christ. So by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's not simply a New Testament truth. That's an Old Testament truth as well. Uh, Now, it is true that people in the Old Testament had less revelation than we have. But nonetheless, um, God had revealed as early as Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, the promise of a Savior. They didn't know the Savior's name would be Yeshua or Jesus in English, but they knew that God would send a Savior, that a child will be born and the child's name will be called Mighty God, and that this servant of the Lord would be pierced through for our iniquity. 
And so even Abel, who's the first prophet in all the word of God, we don't know that from the Old Testament, but we know it from the New Testament because Jesus reveals it to us in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. It's recorded where he indicts the Pharisees with the blood of all the prophets, beginning, he said, with righteous Abel, all the way to the last prophet of the Old Testament, Zechariah. And so Abel was a prophet of God, and Peter made it very clear of him, of Messiah, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So all the prophets, and that would include Abel, spoke and preached about Christ. And Abel was doing that very thing when he brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord because he understood the principle that God had already revealed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When Adam and Eve tried to fix their sin problem by the work of their hands, when they sewed fig leaves together, God revealed that fig leaf religion is not pleasing to him. And so the first death in all the universe takes place where God slaughters an innocent animal. And he forever teaches a truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Uh, The difference between the two sacrifices had nothing to do with the origin of the offering, if some have argued it, or the quality of the offering. has everything to do with the kind of offering. We know that as we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So God's one way of salvation has always been through the work of Messiah. The difference was they were looking forward to the Savior of the world who would come who would make a payment for their sin. We understand the payment more fully and completely than any of them. But nonetheless, they recognized they could not save themselves. And so you will meet people in heaven from the Old Testament era, and they will be there because Jesus Christ saved them. He redeemed for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that includes Old Testament saints. They looked forward to the Messiah. We look back at what Messiah has already done, but only one way of salvation, and that's through Christ, through Messiah. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener who writes, My current wife is divorcing me and is trying to treat me very ungodly through the legal system by taking everything. If she succeeds, I'll lose my home and almost everything else. Jesus says, Turn the other cheek. What is your opinion? Should I not try to protect myself? Well, you know, sometimes people are divorced against their will, and it's a sad thing, and it's a sad commentary in the society that we live in. Uh, it's something that God said would be predominant in the last days, that men would be truce breakers. Uh, they would not keep covenant, and that's really what marriage is. It's a covenant between two people and God, and uh, we live in a day where sometimes, you know, another person enters into the marriage, and that's usually the impetus for most divorces. So there's a third party, and they say all of a sudden, well, I don't love you anymore. I, I don't know if I love you anymore. And they break covenant and they divorce. And so sometimes people have to protect themselves. So it's not necessarily wrong to protect yourself. What Jesus is speaking of is taking vengeance into your hands. And vengeance is the Lord's. So you're not to be a vengeful person. But sometimes, you know, I've met dear ladies, for instance, who've come into the office and their husband has found some other woman and they're trying to, you know, destroy them materially and financially. Um, And that's sad. And I said, well, you have to protect yourself at this point. Now, um, you know, there's a lot of attorneys who are selling divorce who shouldn't be, especially if they name the name of Christ. 
but there are some people who are divorced against their will. And that's one of the functions of the law, the function of law, man's law, uh, according to the book of Romans, in the function of government is to praise good behavior and to punish evil behavior. And so um, judges were a means of protection. And you find even in the New Testament, someone going to a judge to find protection. And so God can certainly provide for needs that people have through the legal system. So we shouldn't dismiss it as all evil and all attorneys as evil and everything else. Um, there is a place for it. And, um, you know, again, my counsel always is you do everything in your power to reconcile. Uh, that should always be your first uh, view is to reconcile. And it may be that your husband who's trying to destroy you, or in this case, I guess your wife who's trying to destroy you, um, that relationship that she's in may go south. And it's really not over until someone remarries. Um, you may be divorced, but if your spouse is not remarried, there's still a possibility for reconciliation. And that's what you should pray for. And that's what you should seek and earnestly pray that God would somehow, you know, intervene in that relationship and, and rescue that home and that marriage. It's not too late. It becomes impossible when one of the two remarries, according to Deuteronomy 24, you can't divorce your wife and marry a second time and then say, well, I think I'll divorce my second wife and go back to my first. Deuteronomy 24 calls that an abomination. Otherwise, God is basically sanctioning legal adultery. But if uh, there's still a possibility for reconciliation, that's what you should pray for. Uh, that doesn't mean in the interim that you may not have to protect yourself. You may have to uh, because they're divorcing you against your will. All right. Good question. I appreciate it. It's a hard question in the day that we live in. And there's a lot of hurt and heartache out there in this day that we find ourselves in. Our next listener said we had the question come up in Sunday school class that we know we are born sinners. But when babies die, uh, they go to heaven. One of the people in our group doesn't think babies go to heaven. So I am confused with my own understanding. Well, there's not a single verse in Scripture that says when babies die, they go to heaven. But. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture, I do believe that that's what the Bible teaches for several reasons. Uh, We could start, I suppose, in the Old Testament with King David. He was God's anointed one. And if you remember, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And um, he was confronted uh, many months after uh, the sin was over. In fact, the baby was already born. And the prophet Nathan... Uh, He tells him a parable of sorts of a man who has a precious little lamb and how he babied the lamb and treated the lamb as his own daughter. And and, uh, and then uh, a rich man who had plenty of sheep uh, had a friend for dinner and goes after this uh, poor man's little lamb and slaughters it and David as a shepherd and um, could relate fully to that illustration and he jumps out of uh, the throne chair and in essence says he ought to repay fourfold. Well, David paid fourfold. Uh, God forgave him, but he paid fourfold. And the start was the loss of his child. It says the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And as he he prayed, he sought God and, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. 
Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do harm to himself? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. So David arose and from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then he makes this very insightful statement. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, David was a child of God. David knew his predicament after death. Uh, some say, well, he's, David says, well, I'm going to go to the grave. And uh, that's not, that wasn't David's hope. That's a real misapplication of scripture. David recognized the promise of life after death. He believed in the God of resurrection. Uh, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord Jesus used that as an argument for the doctrine of the resurrection to the Sadducees who denied it. Uh, David's hope was in the living God, and he recognized that someday he would see that little child. Uh, When you uh, come a little bit later to another prophet, he was uh, on the run from God. And uh, if you remember, his name was Jonah, and God told him to, to go and preach to the Ninevites. That would be, you know, seemingly a very unpatriotic thing to do uh, because you know, the Ninevites were Israel's worst, one of their worst enemies at the time. But God had compassion even on the Ninevites, and that's always a perspective we need to keep in our minds when even the United States has an enemy and we go against them and we're at war with them to recognize, A, that there's usually believers in that culture and we should pray for the church and the culture, but two, to recognize that God still has compassion on those people. Anyway, if you remember, the greatest recorded revival in the history of man takes place when uh, God saves the Ninevite people, and it's just, it's, it's unreal what takes place. And when it's all done and over, if you remember, Jonah in Jonah 4 is... Uh, a moping prophet. And the book of Jonah is really an interesting little book. It's short, but it's so powerful. In chapter one, he's the prodigal prophet. He's running from God. And in chapter two, if you remember, he's in the belly of the great fish. He's the praying prophet and he's running towards God. And chapter three becomes the preaching prophet where he's running for the Lord. But in the fourth chapter here, he's the pouting prophet and he's running ahead of God and he gets all upset over his little plant that dies and so forth. And And then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hands, as well as many animals. So God says to him, listen, no, no, forget, forget the 600,000 adults who live in Nineveh. 
couldn't you at least have compassion on the Ninevites because there's 120,000 children? And he uses his Hebraism here that describes children who don't know the difference between their left and their right hand, not to mention animals. And you want me to obliterate the whole place, including the kids and even the animals? Uh, the righteous, Proverbs 12 and verse 10 says, has compassion on his animals. God is perfectly righteous. God has compassion even on the animals, much less children and humans. Um, but Jonah didn't have that compassion. So God is compassionate towards children. So when we come to the New Testament, we're not surprised by passages where Jesus likens the kingdom of God to children. So for instance, uh, let me turn to one text here in Matthew chapter 18. And uh, the Lord says this, he, um, he called a child to himself and set him before him. On another occasion, he has a child in his arms, in his arms here, he sets the child before him. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. So God describes childlike innocence and faith as equivalent to faith in the Lord Jesus. And then um, as he goes on and he talks about stumbling blocks and so forth, he says in verse 10 of Matthew 18, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who's in heaven. And so God speaks of angels that watch over children. Sometimes we call, refer to a guardian angel. Uh, occasionally I've been asked in the Bible line, do I believe in a guardian angel, that I have a guardian angel? I don't know if I have a guardian angel, but I think I have guardian angels, plural, based on what Jesus says in this passage and what Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us. In either case, um, for Jesus Christ, to liken the children uh, children to the kingdom of God, and for that not to be true, then Jesus is using a false illustration to teach us a truthful thought. But Jesus never, ever once, because he is the truth, and he cannot lie as God, he never uses error to teach truth. So in all the parables of Christ and all the illustrations of Christ, there are always truthful parables. There are truthful illustrations that he uses to teach truth. So for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to little children, and then for little children not to go to heaven. And again, people say, well, what's the age of accountability as we often refer to it? We don't know. Some people set it at the age of 12 because... Um, we find in Scripture Jesus able himself to reason truth with the Pharisees at the age of 12. Well, I suspect he was able before then because he was smarter than all the, uh, all the religious leaders there. And obviously there was a course of time prior to uh, his being 12 years of age that uh, that knowledge was building and, building and growing and uh, reverberating in his heart and in his soul. Some have said, well, children are unaccountable through 19, through their last teenage year, because uh, they argue that 20 and up of all the people in the wilderness died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. But everyone 19 and below 
uh, God allowed to uh, survive uh, the 40 years of wandering. Um, Again, Scripture doesn't give us an age, and God in his wisdom doesn't allow us to know an age. If we knew, for instance, it was 12, if we knew for sure it was 12, some parents wouldn't get serious until their kids were 11 and a half. Uh, but we don't know when that age is. And I see some children who are 9 and 10 years old who have a very clear understanding of of God, of Christ, and sometimes of morality. Um, and I've seen some children 9 and 10 years old who in this day seemingly already have a hard heart towards the things of God. And if they die, God ultimately is their judge. And he knows whether they are morally accountable or not. But I believe I've met some who at nine or 10, um, you know, were fully accountable. And if they died in that state, they would have died lost. But there are children who are very small, some three and four years of age, some six and seven. God alone knows the age. And I think it's different for different children because God makes us different. It's like walking. You know, some kids walk at 18 months old and some kids walk at nine months old. But sooner or later, they they walk. And some kids are able to really grasp the gospel at four and five. And some doesn't seem until they're nine or 10. And, And God knows the age of accountability as it relates to each individual. But we should be on our knees even as our children are developing in the womb and pleading with God and begging God to bring them at a young and tender age to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by nature, they have a bent towards evil. They're shaped in iniquity. And as the scripture summarizes humanity, he says, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. So if your child seemingly has a proclivity for the things of God, it's not because they initiated that desire in themselves. It started with the living God who initiated with them. And that's what we should pray for and seek and cultivate as our as parents as we bring our children up in the discipline and in the knowledge of God. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net if you have a question on our next Bible line or even today if we get through them all. We did have Roman from the Big Apple, New York, New York, uh, write, I saw on your website that you're from Worcester, Mass., I know a friend who's doing inner city ministry in Worcester and in Boston. Would you tell me a little more about the inner city ministry and what uh, it's like in those places? Well, um, you know, for instance, in Worcester, there's a church that I was actually a part of uh, as a new Christian called Pleasant Street Baptist Church. It's on Pleasant Street in Worcester, Massachusetts. And when I was there in the 1970s as a new Christian, there was about 150, 175 members. Uh, the complexion of the city began to change. And unfortunately, that church, after I left and several years went by, as the complexion of the city changed, uh, that church didn't reach the this people who were moving into the city. And so there was uh, basically a flight to the suburbs, uh, a white flight. And it was really unfortunate. And that church at one point um, was down to, I think, around 2002, 2003, five people. Uh, It virtually died. And there was just a handful of people meeting around a table. The building was in disrepair. And they said, well, should we sell the property? It's downtown property and maybe donate it to another church or what should we do? And 
and God burdened them, no, you need to reach your neighborhood for Christ. And they called a pastor who was willing to come with he and his eight, eight children or seven children, I think he has. And they've done a remarkable job. And now they have over 100 members and they're deeply engaged in inner city ministry and they're dealing with homeless people and uh, they have a food pantry where they minister to people in need. They have a coat ministry where they provide uh, warm coats for uh, people who live on the streets. And it's, it's remarkable to see what God is doing in that congregation. So you have to ask, who is your audience and who lives in my neighborhood? And we need to seek to reach those people. And it's unfortunate that uh, many churches, you know, have fixed in their mind And I think a lot of this error comes through the church movements, church growth movements of the last uh, 20 or so years that have taught us as evangelicals that we need to choose our audience and we need to go after that audience because those are the people, if we're going to be effective, uh, we can reach, that we can't reach an audience of people that is rich and poor and educated and uneducated and multiracial. Well, if those are the people who live in your neighborhood, then you can reach those people, and God has called you to reach those people. And this whole nonsense that we are to have a, you know, a, a Samantha uh, uh, Saddleback or Saddleback Sam or Saddleback Samantha, and those are, you know, we create this um, uh, this image of this is what our target audience is, and this that's that's anti-scripture. And it is against the word of God, but many churches have bought into it. And for that reason, they're dying. And uh, that's what happened to that church. And so there are many good inner church ministries in Boston and in Worcester. If you just Google, you know, inner church ministry, and it's usually evangelicals that are doing it for the most part. Uh, There are some exceptions to that. There are some liberal churches that will have a soup kitchen because they make themselves feel good by doing social ministry and they define the gospel as in, as the social gospel, that it's not the death, burial and the resurrection of Christ, but lay those aside. And there are very few for the most part, inner city ministries are done by evangelical born again, Christians who understand the great commission, who understand that God is not a respecter of persons and that we are to reach those people for Christ. So, um, anyway, um, let's go to our next question. We could go a lot longer on that, but we won't. All right. My uh, husband, our next listener writes, my husband and I just lost our unborn child. He or she passed on a couple weeks ago, but we did not know until our routine three-month appointment where no life or heartbeat was discovered. We have two other healthy children for which we are thankful. The The anguish we feel over the loss is common, I know, as I'm not the first woman to go through this and won't be the last. I would have an easier time understanding why this happens if I believed in Mother Nature and the natural process of elimination. But Scripture says that only God opens and closes the womb. I have to believe this is for every person correct. I assume that means even the teenage girls I saw with pregnant swollen bellies as I raced my car crying and overwhelmed with confusion, shock, and grief. Their babies were meant for earthly life, but mine? Are babies sometimes created specifically for heaven? If so, that would be easier if he, she had a role to fulfill there. But if not, if God saw fit to not allow a physical birth of a baby because of a defect or there was some chromosome issue as is claimed as the reason for the majority of miscarriages, why would he allow some children to be born with defects and others not? 
Again, I'm, I'm hoping these lives were only meant for heaven. Then there would leave no room for a mistake or a natural process of weeding out certain things. I know there are things we'll never understand until we get to heaven, but I'm hoping you can shed some light on the possibilities of why miscarriages are allowed to happen. What's well, a good question, and it is somewhat related uh, to the question that came a little bit earlier concerning the state of children and included in little children who are unaccountable and that they are unable to understand whatever age that may be for them. You could also include people who are mentally incapacitated. There are certainly people with Down syndrome who are some of the most spiritual godly people I've ever met. But then there are some who are so severely mentally incapacitated that they will never be able to grasp or comprehend the gospel. In addition to that, you could put miscarried babies as those who will be involved in, uh, you know, populating heaven. Uh, The Lord God, when he describes uh, what heaven is like, uh, he makes it very, very clear Um, He said, worthy are you to take the book. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus who's on the throne and to break the seals for uh, you did purchase for God with your own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it doesn't say just people from every nation. Had it said that, then you might reason that, well, he's referring to people who um, you know, come from the table of nations and we all come from that. And within the broad table of nations, certainly God's got his bases covered, but he extends it beyond that. He says, um, every tribe and tongue and people in nation, which tells us that, you know, even amongst the peoples who are unevangelized, there will be people in heaven from those unevangelized groups because there will be little children who will have died before the age of accountability. And the Lord Jesus indeed purchased them and acquired their salvation as well. Um, Certainly, I don't believe in Mother Nature either. I believe in Father God. Um, and, And God is the one who ultimately is sovereign over every realm, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. He's even sovereign over the devil. Luther used to say, well, the devil is God's devil. And what he meant by that was that Satan couldn't do anything beyond what God allowed him to do. And of course, when the creation, uh, when man fell, the Bible teaches this, we'll be studying in Romans chapter eight, creation fell with man. And so with the fall of the creation, uh, the world and people, uh, the oceans, the mountains, the sky, the weather is not is the way God originally made it. All of creation fell. And that's why there are defects, um, because it's God who puts man on notice. And God ultimately takes responsibility for even those things. Um, if you remember the encounter that Moses had with God, and he's trying to convince God that He said, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who has made him dumb or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go and I, even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And so God takes responsibility even for uh, defects, so to speak. Um, some of which express themselves as a newborn baby who has physical challenges and sometimes uh, with a baby that dies in the womb. 
Uh, and again, it's all a part of the fallen creation that we live in. Now, again, sometimes sin can create problems. For instance, if a woman uses drugs consistently, habitually, she can create uh, chromosome defects in her own body that can be expressed in the life of a child. And so a little baby can be born with defects. And again, God is sovereign over that because of the laws that he has written in the universe. But as hard as it is to lose a baby, and it is hard, um, that child is no less a human than a child who's five years old. And so that precious little baby that you lost, someday you will meet in heaven. There was a popular um, country song probably 15 years ago done by a group called The Greens. It was called Jesus Has a Rocking Chair. And the basic theme of the song, I met the lady who wrote it, and um, they were probably back then the, the leading uh, country gospel group in the country. And we happened to be on vacation up in the mountains of Tennessee. And I thought, you know, we went to this church and it had about 35 people. And I walked in with my five kids and they uh, went up there and they, they changed the number. They had this little numbering system in worship and they took down 35 and they raised it to 42 that morning. And it was up in the mountains, and, and this group that was leading the the worship was just like, this was unreal. I thought, this is these people are unbelievable. I went up and met them after, and, you know, all oh, these are the greens that you hear, you know, nationally on, you know, uh, Southern Gospel back then. And anyway, they wrote a very popular song, Jesus Has a Rocking Chair, meaning Jesus cares for little infants who die. Now, I don't think that... Uh, when you meet your child in heaven, that you will meet your child as an infant. Uh, but nonetheless, God cares about little infants. And in passages like Psalm 139, uh, which is a great psalm describing the providence of God, um, the psalmist King David writes these words. He says, my frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes or your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not yet one. So, again, God is the author of life, and he knew that your baby was going to live 60 days or 90 days in the womb or 120 days or whatever it may have been. Um, and you will meet that baby someday. And, yes, it's difficult to lose a child. Um, and you know, we've had friends and relatives who've lost children and some who've miscarried babies and then they've buried those babies and held a funeral service, uh, in their, sometimes in their own backyards or in some special place because that child is a child in the sight of God almighty. And, um, you'll meet that child someday. I'm not saying what I'm saying is making it any easier, but it is an explanation, a partial explanation as to why miscarriages take place because we live in a fallen world and when man sinned and sin entered into the world, the creation fell with it. And that's part of the reason under the sovereignty and providence of God that babies miscarry. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. We have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. How can we help today? 
Well, the other day I was reading with a friend the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Uh huh. He wrote about seventy of them. Yep, I've read them before. Sure. We were uh, okay, and we were very encouraged by it, and you know, challenged by it, and we kind of you know sat with each other to make resolutions to our own lives. You know, we're about the same age he was when he did it when when he did it. But I was wondering if you had any advice on the how to do it because you know sometimes we struggle to keep our New Year's resolutions. So how do you make 70 resolutions to keep them throughout your whole life like that and a theological aspect? Well, that's a good question. Um, one, you might want to listen to my uh, New Year's Day sermon uh, from 2013. I think I preached it like December 30th, 30th or 31st of 2012 in preparation for New Year's the new year. And I I spoke about, you know, why resolutions don't typically work. And so there's nothing wrong with making resolves in your life, but resolves like anything else are impossible to keep apart from walking in the spirit. Uh, As much like I was speaking this last Sunday, um, and that message is online. We're in Romans chapter eight. We're working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, and we've come to Romans eight, which is uh, really the Holy Spirit chapter of Romans. Romans uh, six, seven, and eight deal with the process of uh, sanctification. Three great doctrines are unfolded in the doctrinal section of Romans, which comprise chapters one through eight. First, the doctrine of condemnation, then the doctrine of justification. So first he deals with the fact that we're all guilty and we are worthy of the just wrath of God. But then beginning in 321 through the end of chapter five, he speaks about how God can declare people who are guilty and worthy of his condemnation, righteous in his sight. But then he moves into the doctrine of sanctification, that after a person has met Jesus Christ, that process by which God shapes us into the image of the Lord Jesus. And so in chapter six, he deals with the fact that when Jesus died, he dealt not just with the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin that there is now a choice that is available to the child of God, that they no longer have to be slaves of sin, that they don't have to say, well, I just can't help myself, and I've always been this way, and I'll always be this way. And No, we have choices we can now make because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Paul wants us to know that and to understand that. Just like a person has to know the gospel the plan of salvation before they can believe it. Some people say, well, I got saved, but then, you know, 10 years later, I I learned what Jesus did for me. No, you didn't get saved 10 years ago. You have to know that you're bankrupt and that only the death, burial, and resurrection plus nothing we can do can save us. That's the gospel God asks us to believe. And in the New Testament, understanding precedes conversion. Well, the same is true in the plan of sanctification. Many Christians today know the plan of justification. They just don't know the plan of sanctification. And that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 deals with as he unfolds our identification truths in Christ. And so in chapter 7, you have a person who in essence is making resolutions but can't keep them. And so Paul describes the turmoil of the seventh chapter, the good that I wish I cannot do. I do the very evil that I wish not to do. And so the liberation comes in the eighth chapter. And before chapter eight, the Holy Spirit has scarcely been mentioned in Romans. In fact, just twice, once in the fifth chapter where he says the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. And then in 
chapter 7, I think it's verse 6, where he tells us that we're not to live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But in the 8th chapter, in the first 27 verses, he's mentioned no less than 19 times. And he is the key to carrying out the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. He is the one who enables us to put into shoe leather what Jesus acquired for us at the cross, where we no longer have to be slaves to sin, but we can be slaves to righteousness. So resolutions are good if they're kept in perspective, because it is impossible to live the Christian life. No one can do it. But God wants to do it in and through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this certainly is what the Lord Jesus taught us in passages like John 15, where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there are people who have convictions, and their convictions are not necessarily good convictions. And you could call them resolves, but they're not necessarily good resolves if they're not based and rooted in the word of God. And so people can have bad convictions, false convictions, and they can tell you very strongly what they believe and they can be very sincere about it, but they're sincerely wrong. So it's as we study the word of God contextually, grammatically, historically, and pour our minds through the word of God that God will begin by the Holy Spirit, our teacher, the illuminator of the Word of God. He will begin to give us some rock-solid convictions that we can live by, some resolves that we can commit ourselves to. And, um, and that's important. There are certainly some common resolves that we all share as believers in Jesus Christ. And those are plainly taught in God's Holy Word. There may be some personal applicational resolves that God will give you as it applies to your life uh, that may be different from the resolves that he may give me that will apply to my life. But that's application of a biblical truth. But first, we need to find out what the biblical truths are. We have to ask, well, what is it? What did it, you know, I hear, I heard somebody recently say, well, it's important when you study the Bible that you study, well, what does it mean to me? No, that's bad. That's bad theology. It's not what does it mean to me. It's what did it mean to the original audience? What did it mean in its historical context? And when I understand what it means, then I can ask, well, what do you want to do with that truth in my life? How do you want to apply it? And if that's what you mean by what does it mean to me, great. But there are many people who just read the Bible. What does it mean to me? Well, that doesn't mean much to me because I don't like what it says. Well, that's not how we read and study the scripture. So anyway, um, does that help a little bit? Yeah, it does. That was good. Thank you. All right, good. You have a great day. Thanks for calling. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next listener is uh, named Kelvin, and he writes, Some say Timothy was not a pastor. I've been going through 1 Timothy on my own, and I see Paul entrusted uh, Timothy to deal with issues in the church acting in a pastoral authority. So was Timothy a pastor? Uh, we'll get yeah, to that question. Of course, let me just answer it quick. I can answer it in 30 seconds. Yes, he was a pastor. Um, we speak of the pastoral epistles, a term that's been used for about 250 years uh, in reference to First and Second Timothy and Titus. But Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church there. And he's giving him instruction as to how the church should function and lead. Remember, all apostles are even pastors. Paul, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5. Not all pastors are apostles, obviously, but all apostles who are called by Christ, who 
saw him in his resurrected body and that calling and sight was confirmed by sign, wonders, and miracles. They are pastors. And so he speaks of our fellow elder. Anyway, um, so yes, he was a pastor. And um, let's go to our next question, our next call. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. This is uh, is Josh. Hey, Josh. Um, How can we help today? um, I have a question about women in... Uh, church leadership. Okay. Um, so the specific question is, um, I've got a pastor's wife who is doing the announcements and is leading corporate prayer. And it looks like the pastor is going to be asking um, a woman to take over the, the worship. We've had a man in place, and he's been doing a fantastic job. And I feel uncomfortable with it, but I'm not sure if it's just uh, how I was raised, or if there's a really strong enough scripture to support that this is not the right thing. Well, it's really a great question, and um, let me answer it, and then I'm going to give you some uh, food for further thought if you want to really explore this um, in, in more detail. Uh, I preached a series of sermons out of First Timothy chapter 2, um, where he deals with the role of men and women in the church. Um, and so let me just read a couple of verses from First Timothy 2, and it may be, and I, I don't know anything about your church, so I don't want to make any judgments about your pastor. He may be the finest man in the world. But let me just tell you what often happens in evangelicalism today. A church that has staunchly recognized the complementarian view of men and women. Uh, There are two basic views today, what we call egalitarianism or the egalitarian view of men and women or complementarianism. What's the difference? There's a huge difference, and it's an important theological distinction. In egalitarianism, they say men and women are equal in not only in their stature before God, but in their function and the roles that they can play before God. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches complementarianism, that men and women are equal in their stature before God. There's neither male nor female, uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But they are distinctly different in their roles and their function before God. And so, for instance, complementarianism expresses itself in the home and the church and even in government. And so in the home, for instance, the man is to be the head of his wife, the Bible teaches. Uh, They are equal, just as the Father is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. Christ is no less God than the Father, but they have different roles. And so what's happening today through a lot of groups like, you know, in the church growth movement, because they want to be politically correct, they want everyone to like them, they don't want to do anything that will, you know, hinder their numbers, Um, they will violate Scripture. And so, you know, Rick Warren had Beth Moore preach a Sunday morning sermon, you know, in his church. That's a violation of the word of God. Uh, First Timothy 2.12, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Bill Hybels, another key leader in the church growth movement. He has like 11 elders and six of them, six of his 11 pastors are women. Well, that's a violation of the word of God. Um, God has different roles for women to play in the church. And so what often happens is a pastor, because he believes that, but he doesn't want to be too aggressive in trying to change the church. Immediately, he takes a very slow, gradual, 
um, direction in which the people will later become accepting of that. And the, and the kind of things that is happening in your church is typically the first steps that are taken in order not to create too much fuss. Now, it may be that that's not your pastor's heart, and that's why, again, I don't want to judge him, but I'm just telling you from experience, this is what typically happens. Now, can women pray in the church? Yes. Paul's very clear on that in passages like 1 Corinthians 14. But who is to take the leadership of prayer in the church? Men. So Paul, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and so forth, but rather by means of good works as befits making a claim to godliness. Let women receive instruction with entire submissiveness and quietly. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so he gives some very clear direction. Now, the word man, men here is not anthropos, meaning mankind, men or women generically. It's the Greek word arnair that means men in deference to women. So 1 Corinthians 14 teaches that women can pray in the church. Um, but who is to take the leadership in that process? Men are. And I think it's a sad state when you have um, women leading worship on Sunday morning or leading even uh, habitually um, in usurping the role that they are to allow men to play. And, and the rationale I often hear, well, you know, we couldn't get a guy to teach the Sunday school class, so we put a woman in there. Well, you should have said, ladies, well, if the guys don't want to teach it, I guess we won't have a class rather than to violate what the word of God says. So men are to lead in the church, and when we feminize the church, we create really harmful patterns uh, that will lead the church to error and lead our churches into great, great heartache. I want to tell you the churches that are leading in terms of fostering homosexuality in feminized boys are churches that have robbed men of the God-given role and responsibility that the Lord God has called them to play as leaders in the church. You want your children to be feminized, put them in a church where the woman is a preacher or put them in a church where the women run everything. And that's not the way it is supposed to happen. I'm just giving some brief comments here. And there's so much I could say, but what I want to encourage you to do is go to searchthescriptures.org, listen to three messages that I preach beginning with 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, and I unfold this in a lot more detail. I appreciate the question. It's an important question. Uh, We're out of time. Um, If you're in the Bluffton area tonight, I will be at our new Bluffton campus, which is uh, right behind the BMW dealership. And so, um, Rick, give them the address. It is to Coastal Drive. Tonight at 715. Hope you can enjoy, enjoy, and join us. Thank you.